My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Genevieve about her three major pains, bipolar disorder, ADHD, and ulcerative colitis. We'll also be speaking with Genevieve about her experiences starting around 19 years old, touring with a state-funded program to speak about living with bipolar disorder. This came about because as a senior in high school, she won an essay writing contest about what she wanted to see change with the stigmas around bipolar. Genevieve was diagnosed with type 2 bipolar disorder around 13 or 14 years old, and for the next several years went through a very painful journey trying different medications. When she turned 18, she was finally allowed to try a medication called Lamictal, which is very controversial for use with children because it can have some serious side effects and even life-threatening reactions. But Genevieve says this medication was like magic, like the light at the end of the tunnel through her years of struggle as a teenager. It was so effective, it finally allowed her to focus on living the rest of her life. And just a year later, she found herself being propped up as a beacon of wellness within the bipolar community, representing a foundation aiming to raise awareness around bipolar disorder and given state-sponsored material that she didn't have full control over what she was saying on stage. And I was super, super interested to interview Genevieve and talk about this, because she has really complicated feelings about this period in her life, where she recognizes that she did a lot of good and raised a lot of awareness, but she questions the ways in which it was done, the way the messaging was handled, and the way that she wished things might have been done a little differently. She also discusses the ways in which her ADHD and her bipolar disorder interact, as well as her development of ulcerative colitis in her late 20s. At first, adding another chronic illness on top of what she was already living with was extremely overwhelming, and she had to go through this process again of trialing different medications until she found something that worked. Like me, Genevieve lives in Seattle, and she works with Hollow Earth Radio, which is a low-powered local FM radio station. And she's putting together a radio show called Access Hour, which will feature the work of artists with disability, chronic illness, invisible illness, and chronic pain. So if you would like your work to be featured on the Access Hour, she will tell us all about how you can reach out and submit your music. This is such a great conversation, and it focuses on a lot of topics that are really important. Genevieve does an excellent job describing what it feels like to have bipolar disorder and what it was like to finally find appropriate medication and her discussion of her advocacy work and the complicated feelings that that has brought upon her as an adult, as well as the challenge of having a new chronic illness pop up after already living with an existing chronic illness. It's all super, super interesting and super important stuff. Genevieve did a fantastic job. So we've got another great episode of the podcast to share with you today, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. This podcast is supported by our listeners, and there are several great ways to support the show. I'll keep it brief this week and tell you that you can just head to our website, majorpainpodcast.com slash support to learn about all the ways you can do so. And of course, I have to thank our Patreon producers who are going above and beyond to support this show financially. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Thank you so much for your continued support. Like I said, you can learn more on our website, or you can always find links in the show notes of each and every episode to support the show on Patreon, through Rare Patient Voice, through research opportunities, or to connect with us on social media. I'll remind you, as always, that my guests and I are not medical professionals, so please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we're going to keep our intro short this week. We're going to jump right into our discussion with Genevieve about bipolar disorder, ADHD, and ulcerative colitis. Music 
Genevieve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited to chat with you today. We actually know each other in real life. (laughs) <laughs> we've met in real life and we chatted last week and we talked a little bit about your story and I'm just like, we have to get you on the podcast because <laughs> this is something that's sort of uh, a, a different view on chronic illness in general that we haven't really covered mm-hmm. on the show yet. And it's something that I think is really important. So I'm very sure. excited about that. Uh, but before we get to it, let's get to know you a little bit. So Genevieve, tell us about yourself. Yeah. Um, well, my name's Genevieve. I use she, they pronouns. Uh, I am a San Diego born person. And it's very dear to my heart, that place. Um, But I've been in Seattle for about nine years. Uh, I am so enthusiastic to be a part of the music scene up here. Uh, We have some amazing arts and programs going on that I've been so lucky to be a part of. Uh, So I just delve into the music scene as much as I can. Um, I have some family in the area who I try my best to stay connected with, uh, but spend most of my time just trying to be connected to music and do as much work as I can in that area with radio. Yeah. Yeah. This is what we were chatting about last week is your work with uh, Hollow Earth Radio. Are you Mm -hmm. ready to announce your upcoming show? Is that something we can talk about on the podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that because that's going to be really cool. Sure. Uh, Hollow Earth Radio is based out of Seattle. It's broadcasted out of the Central District. Uh, That is where the antenna lives. Uh, And it's low power FM, which means there's a more limited range than those huge radio stations you're probably more familiar with. Uh, But it's freeform radio. So some really wacky stuff gets played on the air. It's a lot of room for creativity for DJs to broadcast things that are fun sounds and field recordings and, you know, podcasts on interesting topics. Uh, And I became involved with Hollow Earth Radio with this dream in my heart of having a show one day, uh, since I've always wanted to promote artists in different communities that may not be heard. And uh, so I'm developing and on the 29th of January this month in 2023, I am going to start broadcasting a show called The Access Hour or Access Hour. Uh, And it's just going to be so exciting to promote artists who have disability, chronic illness, invisible illness, and chronic pain. Those are artists in the Pacific Northwest and outside of the Pacific Northwest who make amazing music and audio and podcasts and, you know, other type of content that really deserves to be on air. My audience won't be huge. Um, but I think it's a step in the right direction just to put out music from disabled artists at all. Uh, it's just so close to my heart as a disabled person and artist to uplift all kinds of voices. So that is going to be the show. Yeah, it's so, so cool. What a great idea. I love the name, The Access Hour. I think that's fantastic. And are are you looking for more artists right now? Is this? Do you want to put out the call if there's people listening to the podcast? Um, Can people submit to be on the show? Anything like that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I am open to folks with all kinds of experiences to share their art. Uh, It would be a mistake, you know, just based on the ethos of the radio station and the point of the show to limit it to any one area. I can't guarantee that something will be aired on the show, but I will make as much effort as I can to share the music on my website that's being developed or the social media 
for my show um, in the radio station, but having a variety there and having people submit what is meaningful to them would be fantastic. Awesome. I'm all ears. <laughs> and where would people go to, uh, to get in touch with you to submit anything? Um, there is the Instagram, Instagram account for it, uh, Access Hour Radio. And in addition to that, Hollow Earth Radio has its Instagram account, uh, its Facebook account, and other social media, and Twitter, for better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, in addition to that, I have my email, uh, djazaliahher at gmail.com. That is DJ. And then A-Z-A-L-E-A-H-E-R at gmail.com. Awesome. So, yeah, if you're a chronically ill or disabled mm -hmm. musical artist of any kind, if you make music and you want to have it be on Hollow Earth Radio here in Seattle, that's that's a great way to get in touch with Genevieve and, you know, mm -hmm. show, show her your stuff and see if maybe you can be played on local Seattle radio. I think that's such a cool opportunity. Yeah, we also stream through hollowearthradio.org for mm. folks who don't have access in the range of the radio station. So anyone, there's people from all over the world who tune in through that portal. Um, and that can be used with smart technologies and through the website and through apps and things like that. Um, so all of that information is also available through our social media as a station. And if anyone ever wants to submit to the station, we have DJ at Hollow Earth Radio as well. Um, so if you want to get your music on in any way and you feel like it's not appropriate for that particular show, it'll get on somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's all those shows are all over the place in the best way possible. Awesome. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Well, I really I'm really excited about the show. I think that it's such a great idea and what, what a cool way to, you know, highlight the work of our community. I think it's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get into your story. Genevieve, what is your major pain? My major pain is bipolar disorder type 2, uh, ADHD, and slightly more recently, uh, ulcerative colitis and IBD illness. And it has been a really big journey to, you know, get to know myself through the context of those illnesses throughout really different parts of my life. Um, and I can get into the timeline if that's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Before we do, yeah. what is the difference between the different types of bipolar disorder? Oh, happy to answer that. Done that many times. <laughs> uh, so, bipolar disorder as the umbrella term for those um, mood disorders is characterized by different episodes that are characterized by a variety of symptoms. Bipolar disorder type 1 the difference between one and two is that the episodes of mania um, are a little bit different. So there's depressive episodes, which feature depression symptoms, low motivation, low self-esteem, feelings of worthlessness, uh, can be like difficulty getting out of bed, issues with disordered types of eating, uh, it really has a variety of ways that it shows up for different types of illnesses and different people. That's the thing with mental illness and mood disorders is that there are these umbrella terms that we use, but for each person, it can look so different. Uh, for me, with type 2, I had those depressive episodes, you know, uh, feelings of worthlessness, 
feelings of just no motivation that things weren't worth pursuing in my life and that I had nothing to contribute to the world around me. Um, and then differently from that, not opposite, but differently, those hypomanic episodes were feelings of elation, really high drive emotions, uh, highly creative periods, highly uh, almost obsessive focused periods on certain types of activities, usually artistic ones, which is very uh, a common trope with folks with mood disorders is that there's this artistic drive. Um, and the way that I can explain it to folks who don't have experience with this umbrella of mood disorder is um, hypomanic episodes for me would be like speeding in a car. It can be really thrilling to be on a track in a really cool sports car, speeding down the highway, knowing that you're being reckless and they're having a great time. After a while with the hypomanic episode, the way it feels is that you have a brick tied to your foot that is on the gas pedal and you're suddenly speeding in a way that you cannot stop. Mm. And it is out of the person's control in those types of episodes. Um, where just the colors are flying by and words go flying by and it can be difficult to speak with how many thoughts are in your brain that you're trying to shove outside of your mouth. <laughs> and it can be really intense with depressive episodes or those hypomanic ones. I experienced both in different frequencies and in different levels of what one could classify as intensity. And they showed up in really different ways in my young life as a teenager. And and what's the, uh, how would you classify the difference between the type two and type one? Oh, yes. Type one is classified as those manic episodes being more, quote, severe. Hmm. It can be hard to quantify those things in ways that are meaningful to people. Uh, but if you're looking at it from a more like medically classifying situation, Full mania episodes can have, um, you know, delusions of grandeur or a really big vision for life. So if you took what I described with the hypomanic episode and put that person in an even faster car, mm. that is what that tends to look like with type one. Okay. That's, that's yeah. so interesting. And that it sounds like it must be a judgment call on the part of your, which, whatever type of healthcare provider you're working with who's diagnosing mm -hmm. you. Um, a judgment call on their part about where you fall into that categorization. Is is that true? That's absolutely true. It can be a really difficult diagnostic process and there's often misdiagnoses in the mm. beginning of the process for bipolar disorder. Uh, so I was so privileged and will acknowledge this every time I talk about it, that I started out my diagnostic journey with a provider who really saw the situation with a lot of clarity. Uh, he listened to what I had to say and had so much insight about how the illness was showing up in my life and, and manifesting with symptoms. Um, so for me, I didn't quote qualify for type one, though there are obviously a huge amount of overlap between all the different types of mood disorder um, diagnoses. They were like, nah, you're, you're type two, you you aren't in the fastest car. You're in a fast car, but you're not in the fastest car. Hmm. And <laughs> how old were you when this started? I was diagnosed as an adolescent case 
around 13 to 14, which that can be a hard thing to diagnose with kids. Uh, these types of illnesses manifest in really different ways with adolescents. They can get misdiagnosed with different types of, you know, behavioral issues at that age, being a teenager. That's a significant issue in the mood disorder community. I was very fortunate to have my mom, my primary caretaker, acknowledging the family history of mood disorders and going, there's something going on here. And my daughter needs to have that observed <laughs> in some way. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So what did that feel like as a 13 or 14 year old to be going through this diagnostic process? Back then, from what I can remember, there's so much confusion and there's a lot of fear. For me, because I was very much embroiled in these episodes, depression and hypomania, it was like I was so busy swimming in an ocean of this illness, all of the symptoms and episodes, that it didn't really register the gravitas and the, the major uh, the, the hugeness of that diagnosis at the time. It was as I grew into my life later that that became a much bigger deal to me. Interesting. Do you remember when your episodes began or is it something that was just always a part of you throughout childhood? I presented symptoms that were similar to um, ADHD, which was my dual diagnosis with bipolar disorder when I was in earlier elementary school. My mom was actually the librarian at my elementary school, <laughs> so she was very in touch with the teachers who were noticing, uh, you know, quote, behaviors that would separate me from what they wanted me to do to be successful. It would be things like I would have to stay in during recess to redo papers that I was writing in class because I would write over the same letters over and over until they were perfect. Mm. Uh, or I would just not be listening during class. And so the information I needed to retain for tests was not with me in any way. And they would tell this stuff to my mom and she'd go, oh, okay, uh, it's time to get this looked at. Yeah. And do you think that was more the uh, bipolar or ADHD at that point? Or are they sort of like inextricably linked? Oh, I'm sure it was a mix of the two. Mm. Uh the episodic nature of bipolar disorder for me didn't really kick off in its most severe forms until I was a little bit older into my teenage years. Uh, but there's, it's such a complicated way that it emerges for different people, especially yeah. with kids, that there's so much that was wrapped up together in what I was really dealing with at the time. You did such a great job describing uh, your bipolar disorder. I, I would love to hear you describe ADHD as well from, from the point of view of someone living with it. Um, mm -hmm. How would you describe that condition? Goodness. It's so inextricably tied to my bipolar disorder. Yeah. But I can say there are some distinct differences in regards to the way I have to build a toolbox to approach what I want to get done. Hmm. Over the years, with the help of, you know, heavily medicating for all of these issues. Uh, I have built ways to organize myself and organize my thought processes to accomplish things I want to get done every day. Back then, ADHD looked like I was just not holding on to stuff. 
I would try to get a homework assignment done and there would just be so many things going on in my brain that I wanted to do, that I wanted to start and think about and interact with that the things that were right in front of me were not holding my attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. And would your ADHD symptoms sort of go in flux with your uh, episodes of depression or mania? Was there like a different flavor of ADHD in mania than there was in depression? That's a wonderful question. And surprisingly, I've not really thought about that before. Mm. It's wonderful. Um, <laughs> it's great. That's a thinker. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that there's a relationship there. For me, the episodes with bipolar disorder were so overwhelming. That illness, when it's really active, is like swimming in an ocean. It is overwhelming, and one can feel trapped in those feelings that come with the episodes. ADHD has been that constant in terms of how I shape my life to stay organized. Bipolar disorder is that, you know, the rolling waves of the ocean that come and can be so overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you've only ever had your brain, so there's no way for you to know what either of these conditions would feel like without the other because they're both yeah. a part of you um but yeah it's so, you're you're just doing such a great job of like giving us some metaphors and a point of view of what it's like which is amazing you know that's something i love about doing this show is just you know I, i've heard the words bipolar many many times and we you know we mm -hmm. had a great episode recently where we talked to kevin who was recently diagnosed with bipolar disorder um but e each person goes through it so differently and then to have you know two diagnoses at the same time, the way that it will manifest is going to be different. And like, where mm -hmm. is the line between the two? Um, you mm -hmm. know, my, my brain is very, my brain likes to kind of parse through information in a specific way, but sometimes that's just not possible. Like sometimes there is no way to, you know, have concrete answers about what a thing is. It's just an individual's mm -hmm. experience and it's going to be different for everybody. That is so true in the way that mental health, manifests for everybody especially in the context of unprecedented times with covid yeah and seeing how so much has changed for people and so much has emerged for people um, due to the times that we're living in uh, i can definitely connect with so many people who have suffered for lack of a better term because of the way that COVID has affected our lives, especially those who deal with mood disorders. Well, I can't like claim that, but I am connected to people sure. who have really had a harder time with the effects of COVID on our lives. Yeah, yeah. And then we, there's also this tunnel we can get in with diagnoses where mm -hmm. it's like, I'm sure that your mental health challenges have also caused anxiety, you know? So it's like, then are we <laughs> emphatic nodding of head? Um, mm -hmm. So then it's like, do we, you know, how do we categorize? How do we parse through all of it? And when in yeah. the end, what all, the only thing that really matters is how do we, you know, find the right tools to live your life in a way that allows you the best chance of happiness and good health, you know? Mm -hmm. So I mean, with mental health, this can be so tricky because a lot of this is just like a clinician, you know, clinical diagnosis saying, mm -hmm. this is what I think you have. This is the medication that I think we should try. Mm -hmm. And if you try medication and it doesn't work, then it's like, okay, well, is it a different disorder? Or if you try medication sure. and it does work, it's like, okay, that 
probably lets us know that this is what's going on. But then, sure. you know, things like anxiety can come and go for anybody at any time. Mm-hmm. And inside of COVID, anxiety is high for a lot of people. Yes. So, yeah, it's a, there's all this gray area inside of this. And, you know, that's why I love focusing on one person's story at a time. Because mm-hmm. what what you tell me about your story is your reality. And the rest of it kind of doesn't matter as much. But mm-hmm. just looking at it from this, like, you know, macro view of of chronic illness and society and uh, putting things in boxes and categorizing different things and then people getting put in boxes because of that. It's so complicated, but also I think really fascinating. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because like you totally touched on, you know, we're looking at this situation at a macro level in the context of mental health and chronic illness. And uh, when we look at it in the micro level, we're noticing a lot of change, but that permeates out to the macro level. Mm -hmm. And then we're just going to have these, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years, 20 years from now going, Oh, there's, there's so much that we can track with this change in society and how that's affected people on a micro level. um, Just in terms of illness. Yeah. And I look at, the future there and the uh, the impacts there and hope that folks are able to uh, be compassionate to those who have been especially affected by changes with COVID, which is folks with chronic illness. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, we'll see. Uh, okay, so you're 13 or 14, you're diagnosed with uh, mm-hmm. bipolar and ADHD. And mm-hmm. are you then started on medication? How does your life change? After that diagnosis, I was started on medication, though there was some hesitance on my mom's part to get started on stuff, uh, just because at that age, it's a very sensitive period with with change and development as a 14 year old. (laughs) And I can understand her hesitation there from my perspective now, because even as an adult, all the medications that I've cycled through and the huge impact they've had on me. Uh, it can be its second issue within itself. Um, Absolutely. We, yeah, we we got started on some really intense stuff to see where we could find some relief for me and find some yeah you know, stability. That's a word that gets thrown around a lot in that community. Is you know folks who are not having massive episodes are stable, which is interesting, and. That journey with medication was so painful for myself and my mom. Mm. I know that with bipolar disorder and the way that I responded to medication, with those hypomanic episodes, I didn't think I needed it because I was doing everything. I was doing art, throwing paint on the walls, making amazing drawings, writing award-winning papers, uh, and thinking that I was really doing all right. And so I just didn't think I needed it. That happens with a lot of folks with bipolar disorder. And then depressive or mixed episodes happen and everything turns over and and tanks again. And she tried, my mother tried to get me to be adherent to medication. And that was really difficult for most of my teenage years. Yeah, that's so tricky with medication of any kind is that when you're taking it and it's working, you start to feel like you don't need it. 
because exactly. it's like, well, now I'm fine. And I've done this a million times where I'm like, well, then I go off the medication and, and then I get worse and then I go back yeah. on. Um, it's, yeah, this, this, this is really tricky. This is something that's so difficult. Uh, and mm-hmm. it sounds like, it, you know, particularly so with, with manic um, episodes where you're just like, I feel great. Why do I need medication? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So how long did it take you to find some sort of balance? After quite a bit of trial and error and some very memorable experiences with medication that frankly made the issues much worse at the time, mm-hmm. it wasn't until I was 18 yeah. that we tried a new medication. It's Lamictal, and I'm sure that's a very familiar word to a lot of people. Uh, I wasn't allowed to start it until I was 18 due to some muddy waters legally with my provider at the time because there can be a really life-threatening reaction to the medication that's quite scary. Hmm. And we started on that and it was a huge change. After years, my teenage life, missing so much because I was embroiled with these episodes and struggling in so many ways to start to have that you know, for lack of a, it's very dramatic, but kind of light at the end of the tunnel Mm. um, was, it's life changing. I was convinced for most of my teenage years that I I wouldn't live past 2022, that I would not be able to handle an illness like this with the ups and downs and sideways uh, for my life. So to have that change with the medication that started being effective was essentially opening me up to live the rest of my life. Wow. That, and something you mentioned to me when we chatted last week was uh-huh. your experience in the media. And yeah. is that around this time? Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell yes. our audience about this. Cause th- this is what I was like, we, we've got to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Happy to. When I was a senior in high school, uh, there was a contest put on that my mom heard about. She was connected with caretakers in the community, the bipolar disorder community, um, which I'm very glad she was because she did not have an easy time with this for years. (laughs) Um, And there was an essay contest put on with a a cash prize, very exciting for an 18-year-old, to write about, in I think it was 500 words, what I wanted to see change with stigma around bipolar disorder. Mm. And I believe the night before it was due, she kept bugging me. You should do this. You should do this. You're such a good writer. And I wrote it, I believe, in one go (laughs) because that was my way to try to be successful at the time. And I won. I actually tied for first place with somebody from outside of the United States. uh, And but I won. And I presented the paper to an audience, uh, including Patrick Kennedy which was an interesting person to talk to about all of that. (laughs) He is a high profile person with a mood disorder. Mm. Uh, And it was really gratifying to win. It started me off on what was a very odd journey in the media, however. Following the essay contest win, I became involved with a foundation based out of San Diego. And this foundation was working towards a specific goal with a specific illness in mind to really teach people about the illness, to raise awareness uh, and to help with care, uh, other things that those types of foundations do. Around that time from, you know, 19 to 20, 
I started touring around from a state-funded program to teach about bipolar disorder and my experience. And I went to a bunch of areas around Southern California, you know, San Diego, uh, Orange County, LA. I would speak at medical conferences and for college classrooms for clubs and organizations. One time for a church, just very interesting. And I was given state-sponsored material about bipolar disorder that I didn't have total control over what the content was, mm. but I was given 20 minutes or so at the end of the presentation to talk about myself. Thinking back on it, I wonder if that was the right thing to do. I have learned so much about what disability looks like with my bipolar disorder and now ulcerative colitis in terms of the variety of folks who are a part of this community. And I was given money from the organization, well, it was the state-sponsored program through the organization uh, to essentially talk about myself to people. And I wonder now, was I the right person for that? It's so powerful and I received a lot of really positive reinforcement from people to share my story. But coming into a role like that as somebody who's not even 21 yet was so much pressure for me to share a story so powerful and difficult. But I had people come up to me who are audience members at these events and these conferences. What the heck do I do? My son is struggling so much with this. I'm a father and I don't know what to do. You are doing well. You're a success story with an illness like this. Where do I go? I'm so scared. Being faced with questions like that more than once as somebody who is recently doing well more successful with my care and with my medical care with it, that's too much for somebody that young. Mm -hmm. I'm not a professional. And the pressure that came from that made me question whether or not it was the right thing that I was doing. And you were only a couple of years into being on the right medication. Mm -hmm. Yes. People were so excited. Uh, to hear what essentially was being told as like a success story. There are many people in the audience who already knew what bipolar disorder was and even had it themselves, who were in medical programs or in disability awareness programs. Um, and to be somebody getting on a stage in front of many people many times talking about how like cool my life is with medication and how privileged I am to have access to care just like one young white person, not necessarily representative of what we need to get done as a society to help people with bipolar disorder. I, like I said, I wonder if that was the right thing to do. And to this day, part of me feels like peddling that superstar and superhero narrative um, wasn't the right way. Yeah, it's so interesting. I think that oftentimes when people with chronic illness or disability are put into the spotlight. It is mm -hmm. sort of an, as an example of like, th there's like a superhero disabled trope where it's mm -hmm. like, you may be disabled, but you are a superhuman version of, of this disability. And yes. it's like something that kind of creates a false narrative that if you are disabled, you must also be a superhuman in order to be of value to society, which is incredibly unfair and incredibly wrong. So it's like a really yeah. complicated 
thing going on there where on the other side of this like yes getting up on a stage in front of other people who might have bipolar or maybe their children do hearing from someone who has it and is doing well can be a life-saving experience and something that can be incredibly positive so yeah this this is really really complicated (laughs) it's so complicated it's so complicated the main you know one of the main points of those presentations was to be anti-stigma about the way that bipolar disorder and mood disorders are so shamed and misunderstood by many people and to that degree i think that i accomplished quite a bit I think that being a real person in front of people saying, hey, I'm a real person with this illness and and here's how it's affected my life, but not necessarily getting to control the entire narrative of what I was saying. um, It feels bad. There's Mm. really not any other way to go about it. I don't um, I don't blame or it's not a commentary on the organization itself doing something wrong. I can see the point of what they were doing. But a lot of organizations peddling that superhero na- uh, narrative are not really doing other folks' favors. The way that we can approach, you know, disability awareness and anti-stigma around that issue can be airing many voices. I was put on internet campaigns and I was put on a TV spot. And looking back at that, I just wonder, we could have had more people. We could have had diversity. I wasn't out of the closet yet at that time. So to many people, I probably looked like pretty heteronormative California white kid. And that's not necessarily representative of the variety of folks who deal with this. There were folks in that audience who also came up to me and said, I just really didn't know about any of this. And I think that that is so important for me to learn. And that was the gratifying part is knowing that it was providing support to the community Uh, And it was providing a learning opportunity for folks who just had no idea. Does it always feel good to be the one who's responsible for teaching people about disability as a disabled person? It's a mixed bag, for sure. Uh, Just looking back at that period, I go, I was so young uh, (laughs) and, and not a professional in any capacity except for my loose grasp on my own life. And... There's just so much more that we can be doing in the disability community to uplift people, especially in the context of access to care, access to care, equitable uh, resources for different types of communities and to not being seen, not seeing that being represented in the kind of work I was involved in Mm. uh, means that there's something missing there. Yeah. Did you feel any sense of, enjoying the spotlight i really enjoy um being in front of folks to talk about something i care about i was in the performing arts for 10 years singing dancing doing choir so it felt like a home to me to be able to express myself and that was empowering for me as someone who had had a really rough time and basically missed out on much of my teens with the illness it was empowering to be able to share just a piece of reality of what it looks like to have the illness and to use those metaphors in a way that I hoped reached people. Mm. For that, it meant a lot to me and it it helped me grow a little bit as a person too. Yeah. And then when it, 
how long did this go on? And when it stopped, when it went away, was there a sense of loss about, you know, like I just think about myself at 20, mm -hmm. I was an, an attention whore. So <laughs> I can imagine like if I went through something like this and then if that ever stopped or was taken away, I, I would go through this period of feeling inadequate. Sure. I was in a period of confusion because the fact that I was being put on a stage was lonely. I wasn't a part of like any actual disability communities in terms of personal connection and friendship and camaraderie. And I was given opportunities more than once to meet other people in the disability community and like make friends, not even just work with people, but like have connections and feel supported. And for some reason, it was so lonely to be like exalted as this figure of wellness in the mm -hmm. community when so many folks I met were embroiled in episodes of their own or, you know, were still figuring out medication. And in some way, in a way, and I feel badly about this, I almost thought I was better uh, mm -hmm. because working in that kind of area and being put on a stage to say how awesome my life is now separated me and isolated me from the disability community in a way that took me a really long time to become reconnected to. Yeah. And that that's the thing where it's like, there's so much danger of that when you're young and put on a pedestal like that. Um, and that's something that I think, you know, now we think about kids now, anyone can put themselves on a pedestal because of social mm -hmm. media, you know, anyone can kind of get their voice out there in a way that wasn't possible when you and I were growing up. Um, and I think that there's a, an interesting um, danger involved in mm -hmm. this of making, you know, making your illness your identity versus being mm -hmm. an advocate. Is, yeah. did, is that something you felt back in, back in those days? Yes. Interestingly enough, part of my presentation and content when I was up on stage was like, just because you have an illness doesn't mean it's who you are. And at the end of the day, people were coming up to me and that was who I was to them. Someone with bipolar disorder. Uh, that was my identity. That was what they knew about me because that was the work that they were doing. So as much as I tried to be like, hey, folks who have these mood disorders, you know, it's a facet of their life. It's a big part of their life, but it's not defining them. I ended up accomplishing the opposite and doing that for myself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's so interesting because it sounds to me like you did a lot of good that you like really helped a lot of people, but it also sounds like you were, maybe it sort of chipped away at you in a way that was negative and left you with a lot of guilt uh, that maybe you had to unravel after it was over. Oh, definitely. I didn't actually acknowledge how much guilt I was feeling until I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Uh, in my, you know, mid late twenties and realized um, I was suddenly looking for voices as like a viewer uh, with this new illness and going, wow, if I had been in the audience listening to this kid talk about bipolar disorder as someone who is struggling, I would have been like, screw this person. <laughs> if they're not speaking for me as somebody who's this peon of wellness, uh, and that's when I actually 
was able to start reconciling with myself and, and the guilt I felt for just being on a pedestal for years. Wow. Yeah, it's so complicated. Um, it is. But, you know, you didn't put yourself on that pedestal. You were put there. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I can I can understand all these, like, complex feelings. And, I, you know, it sounds like you've kind of reached a better place with it over time, but that maybe it took a lot of work to kind of unravel some some of what you felt about it, you know, for even like a decade after the fact. Yes. I was told in the messaging that I was given being on stage doing activist work was that I should be embracing my illness and there should be a sense of pride in having this illness. And then going out into the world on my, uh, on my own as an adult, you know, living on my own and pursuing my own goals and what I wanted activism to look like. Being told by other people, you should be so proud, was so destructive. We live in a society that is so deeply rooted in ableism, especially around media portrayal of mental health, that I was constantly battling this like, well, I should be proud. And if I feel bad about my illness, then I should feel bad about that too. Mm. <laughs> uh, and for folks who deal with mental illness, that kind of thought cycle can be really, really destructive. Yeah. And it's, it, it's like a messaging issue, you know, like, mm -hmm. in my opinion, the message should be, um, everybody has challenges. Here is mm -hmm. mine. And let's yeah. all build empathy for each other around what we're all experiencing. And, mm -hmm. you know, kind of educating people about what people with chronic illness and disability may be facing. Um, mm -hmm. And also teaching that every single human being has intrinsic value. And yeah. to, to only value the people who are, you know, able-bodied is so dangerous and so dismissive. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, just like deeply damaging to so many communities. But, and it's so interesting that like in activist work, you know, it, there's like this pendulum of, of where you are and what you're saying. And it's almost impossible to know exactly where you are inside of mm -hmm. that. Um, especially if someone else is kind of giving you words to say and propping you up because you're doing better. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting. It's, I, I can't imagine being in that position and, you know, I also like, I mean, I make this podcast, you know, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. uh, building a platform for other people to share their stories all the time, but I'm also very careful to try to avoid, you know, specifics about how people can get better in general terms, mm -hmm. you know, because I know from experience that it's different for everyone. Such a bizarre thing to try to be a spokesperson for something that is so diverse mm. and requires so much work in different ways. I learned, you know, disability advocacy can look and be embodied in so many types of things and so many active expressions. That's one of the reasons why the radio show is going to hopefully, you know, be a way of celebrating expression around disability and uplift folks because they have challenges, but not only that, because they're people and because we can, like you said, create empathy for other people in different parts of that community. Um, and I hope that I don't, you know, want to like try to shed away the guilt that I felt doing work that I'm not proud of. Um, but I'm hoping to transform my experience into something where I 
and more productive as an advocate and as someone supporting the community. If you could change the messaging that you were delivering back then, Mm -hmm. what would you change about it? I would change it to not be so hyper-focused on myself. There is, like you touched on, so much power in sharing one's journey. Uh, I mean, that's with this podcast you're putting on, which you are doing an incredible job uplifting other people. That's something that I could have done. I could have been uplifting other people, not just giving statistics on how many people have bipolar disorder in a really abstract way, but talking about how it affects particular communities and how access to care is disproportionately available to some folks over other people and what it looks like if you are in someone's life who has bipolar disorder, you know, what you can be doing to be supportive. Not that I am the uh, authority on any of those topics, but that's something that we can do better as advocates and parts of the disability community in acknowledging other people. Mm. So when you were 18, you got on medication that kind Mm -hmm. of helped you maybe get to the surface of this sea that you were swimming in and Mm -hmm. be able to kind of see where you're going. And I'm sure that you still have that ocean underneath you and there's, you know, always challenges. Uh, more more emphatic nodding just for our, our listeners. <laughs> yes. Um, so, what has that looked like since then? Are you, are you on the same, have you been on the same medication ever since you were 18? And is it something that you're always sort of managing or, or how, how does that piece of this look? My medication regimen has changed pretty significantly. I will say that Lamictal is a big deal for folks who have bipolar disorder when it does work. And I have not stopped taking that. It, like many medications, kind of looks like magic to me. (laughs) And if that works, it works. I can't tell other people to take medication, but I can say that has been my personal success. I now deal with another chronic illness, or I now have another chronic illness that almost turned over the table of the progress I made with bipolar disorder because of the amount of fear and uncertainty and, you know, new feelings of uh, just like, what the, what the hell do I do with this new illness? So bipolar disorder for me, I have been doing quote, well, I haven't had any major episodes in years. I have had depressive periods where I just would feel so hopeless. But most of that is coming from having a new illness. Wow. And when did this, I'm I'm assuming you're talking about ulcerative colitis? Yes. And I think you mentioned in your late 20s when that started. What did did that look like when it first came about? I knew something was wrong and went to seek help for it. And all I could think about was if I have another major issue, how do I restart that journey in a way? Because I'm sure many folks with chronic illness, when there is that introduction of like, something's going on and you already have something going on, it's like, oh no, not not again, kind of. <laughs> like, What else am I introducing to my life? And um, ulcerative colitis, it was starting with the symptoms many people are familiar with is this uh, gastrointestinal disruption of life. Uh, having to take breaks and be consumed by just like having to go to the bathroom or being super nauseous uh, and a variety of other things. And for me, the hardest part of that process starting out was going, I already manage something that 
has been really difficult for me. I think about it every day when I take my medication in the morning and I go, what's next in terms of living with another illness? How does that factor into the rest of my life? And there's just so much fear there. Yeah. Is ulcerative colitis something that comes and goes or once it kicks on, it stays on? It kicks on, it stays on. There are theories across the board with my providers on what could have kicked on the ulcerative colitis for me. Uh, and that was in March of 2019. Since then, I fought insurance and I fought my providers really hard to get on the medication that was suggested to me that what isn't the first line medication to treat it, which is called Intivio. Uh, I faced doctors who would give me medication that made me sicker. I faced doctors that I just had to quit with because they weren't listening to me. And now I can say that medication is working. Mm. And like with Lamitrigine, Lamictal for bipolar disorder, I look at it and go, it's a form of magic. It really is. Yeah. Are you taking uh, medication for ADHD? Yes, I am on a stimulant that also does wonders for me. I still have to build a toolbox around how I essentially run my day. I will use apps that have list tools in them. I will set timers for different things. I will check the time pretty frequently to see the pace at which I am getting things done. But I also forgive myself if I'm having a day where I'm a little scattered or I am not accomplishing everything I want to. And it feels like the ADHD is really an active part of that. Part of ADHD is practicing a lot of patience with oneself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it sounds like you've kind of put this puzzle together that mm -hmm. is sort of holding you up and allowing you to, to function in a way that is productive. And you kind of have to keep holding all these pieces together all the time. Does that get heavier or lighter over time? I think that it gets heavier. If I really put my mind to it, it can be exhausting the journey with chronic illness. It can just be mm. exhausting at so many points. The diagnostic process can be exhausting. The treatment process can be exhausting. And then when somebody has a part of their journey and having those pieces put together and finding a way to get through the day, that can be tiring too. My main response to it is um, I'm doing well. And wellness looks different for different people with different disability and chronic illness. But there are still issues that come from doing well. And I do think fear of not doing well and, and you know, relapsing or, or having a symptom and feeling guilt that I still want to represent and be a part of my community. But if I'm doing really well, uh, you know, what part do I play? And I, I love that you're asking yourself that question, given your experiences with advocacy in the media when you were younger, you know, which makes me think about social media, since that's sort of where advocacy uh, is, a lot of advocacy is happening these days. So I feel like you are kind of uniquely positioned to speak to the generation who's on, the young generation who's on social media now, and maybe struggling to find balance with that and figure out where they fit within that. Do you have any pointers or pieces of advice that you would recommend? What sticks with me from what I did is that content that's put out there on the internet has a permanence to it. And 
I still can go back on my Facebook account and find photos I used on my personal account that were used publicly by the Foundation for Online Campaigning. Uh, if I had any advice to give, I would say practice care in what you want to put out in the world. If you have a message you feel really strongly about that is speaking to your experience with disability, chronic illness, chronic pain, or invisible illness, think about what you really want to say. Um, you've had responses from people saying, well, you're not the person to speak on this and I don't like what you said. That's going to happen on the internet because everyone's coming at content with a totally different point of view. Mm -hmm. But it can still be important to think about like what you want to put out there and the impact you want to have on the world. Um, because this stuff's permanent. Someone can just find it and it, it's out there. It's kind of scary to think about if I had put something out on TikTok at that age and said, well, I'm this picture of bipolar disorder and it lived on the internet forever, I'd be mortified <laughs> <laughs> uh, because that's not the message I want to put out. Uh, and that's not the kind of uh, work that I want to do in the disability sphere. So that would be my advice is uh, think about the intention. Yeah. And it's also, you know, for myself, like my older content, my older music, um, you know, I used to game stream and my old podcast and I, mm -hmm. I look at a lot of it and I'm just like, wow, I'm sure if I, my, my, my taste has changed, my opinions have changed sure. and it's like kind of mortifying for me to listen to some of what I used to say on my old podcast sometimes, cause I've just grown a lot and I've learned a lot in the last, yeah. you know, six or seven years. Um, I started podcasting, I think in 2015, mm. um, with my sci-fi show. But, and I'm also trying to like, I really want to be a content creator, you know, like that's mm -hmm. how I want to spend my time and recognizing that I need to be okay with disagreeing with my old self, you know, like I, sure. I need to be okay with letting some things live that make me uncomfortable. Um, if this is the work that I want to do. So yeah, that that's, a you know, a, an equation that everyone has to kind of run through for themselves Kind of like, you know, being on medication all the time is an equation mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, this might have side effects. I am sort of, I have to take this every day or it's not effective. Yeah. Um, I think that everyone who's on medication long-term has thoughts of, I wish I didn't need to do this. Yes. Yeah, I know I do every day. I'm taking medication right now four times a day. Uh, and... Every time I'm just like, well, I'm doing better. Keep doing it. I'm doing better. Mm -hmm. Keep taking it. Keep taking it. Do you have a strategy to get yourself to keep taking medication? It might sound a little dramatic and it might not work for a lot of people, but I do, I can take myself to a little bit of a dark place and remind myself what it felt like and what it can feel like and what it would feel like if I didn't have the treatment that I do and I wasn't consistent on it. I have some memories that will stay with me for the rest of my life about times where I would be in a flare with my colitis and I would sit with my girlfriend and it would be the holidays and I would be drinking broth and that's all that I could eat. And that would all, that's all that I could stomach sitting across from her, you know, and wanting to just be able to take a sip of hot chocolate and knowing that would make me sick. Yeah. And that's probably, you know, maybe not the healthiest way of like keeping myself in check to be consistent. 
but it's also a practice of gratitude too that I can get up and you know be like, hey, if I want hot chocolate, I'm gonna do it. What the heck? And in a way, my medication is is the same thing. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's my way of it's my way of reminding myself um, that I know what it's like to not be able to have the hot chocolate, and I would not like to feel that again. We have to be disciplined, which. Mm-hmm. Which sucks. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. I'd rather yeah. not. You know, like I'm I'm eating this crazy low histamine diet, taking all this medication, and the times that I'm flaring now have been around um physical activity. Um, oh, okay. A couple days ago, like three days ago now, I I my body's been doing so much better. I'm like, I really want to get on the treadmill and run. Yeah. And I, you know, I've done this a couple times, just really short. And I, I got on the treadmill for 20 minutes a couple of days ago. And I haven't mm-hmm. done that in years, like at least, sure. you know, at least six years. I, I jogged for at least 12 minutes of that and then did some walking after. And I got really, really sick the next day. It was mm-hmm. like a full, at least 12 hours later. And it lasted for like, probably like two days and just sort mm-hmm. of like kicked in and then sort of like slowly worked its way through my body and today I'm doing okay again but like last night you know I was hanging out with a friend and we went to play some pinball and I was like I probably shouldn't do this but I really want to um Mm -hmm. and you know my leg stopped working by the end of the night I was like okay I I now need to use my friend as a cane because I don't have any of my mobility aids with me and it's like this thing is just right below the surface you know yes um and the medication is kind of helping it to stay there and yeah. I have to like trust that and I have to stay vigilant. And the mm-hmm. other time I flared up is when I cheat on my diet. And I had a really bad flare yeah. last week from cheating on my diet because I was I just needed to eat food and I was out and I couldn't prepare it for myself. And you know, sure. it had more histamine in it than I wanted. And you know, a couple hours later I'm on the couch unable to really function and but but it passed. Yeah. Whereas before I was mm-hmm. in that state like a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. Well, 80, 90% of the time. So I don't know. It's just like, it's just a, a part of, of living with chronic illness or disability. We, we don't have a choice. Nobody wants mm-hmm. it. None of us chose this, but it's like, we either do the thing that our body needs or we don't. Yeah. So we either are functional or we aren't. And it's yep. like, you just have to kind of get in the mindset of, well, then I have to do it and just keep doing yeah. it and keep doing it. And every once in a while, you're going to fall <laughs> off the wagon and mess up and, and, and suffer for it and get back on the wagon and keep going. Cause there's no other choice yeah. and that sucks. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's you know, I, yeah. It's, that is, it's a reality that even with how disability looks so different for so many people, that's something that can be really uh, like a shared experience. You mm-hmm. mentioned having it right underneath the surface that I can totally relate to because you know, being under the surface, you know that it's there. And so you're keeping it in one place. Uh, but there's that reminder that it's still there. And it's it's still an existing thing. Um, and I, I like the way that you, you put that. That's a good way to reflect on it. Is there anything about your story that we have not included that you would like to include in your episode? Sure. Um, I want people to know that it's totally relatable. Um, to have like other responses to remission. Uh, For example, I have given myself a hard time about putting on weight, (laughs) uh, even though like it's a non-issue, 
But because I respond so much to the ability to now eat food when I couldn't before, uh, it can be another version of an extreme that comes from the illness. But it should be normalized or at least acknowledged that we, even when medication is working and, and doing what we want it to be doing, can live in a state of like having other issues and that that is okay. And that I know I've beaten myself up a little bit about feeling okay and responded to that in other ways that weren't the most healthy choices. But the way that we respond to wellness and the way that we respond to our illnesses, they're all, they're all valid. Um, and that's just a message that I want to put out there as somebody who is really privileged to be able to do the things that I want to do um, and to pursue the hobbies that I want to do is that whatever state that you're in, whatever part you're in in your journey, the way you respond to it and the way you feel is valid. Mm, yeah, so important. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. I have to ask you my favorite question. If you could hop in sure. a time machine and head back to when you were 13 years old, first being diagnosed, mm -hmm. um, 13 or 14, is there a message that you would want to give yourself at the beginning of your journey with everything you've learned since then to ease your own passage through this disease? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would tell myself, you are going to miss out on a lot of things that you consider to be normal teenage stuff. And that might make you feel like later in your life, when you get older, and you're a young adult, that you're missing something in your life. All that stuff that other people were doing that you thought you missed out on, really not a big deal. You will continue to grow as a person and find your place in the world and have really valuable experiences. And just because this one period of your life, you were really feeling like you weren't growing or experiencing things, that's okay. And you will, you'll grow as a person, you'll get there. Awesome, that's a great message. Yeah. Well, Genevieve, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. So yeah, much to think about in there, so much to yeah. think about, you know, a lot of really complicated things. Um, yeah. And I think this idea of like, you know, we all value advocacy so much, but the yeah. way in which you are conducting your advocacy matters. And, it does. And making sure to not take advantage of anyone that you are putting up on a platform to mm -hmm. represent anything is so difficult to avoid, you know? Yeah. Um, and these feelings that you've been left with for all these years are so complicated because it sounds like you did do a lot of good. And... Uh, yeah, it's just really a really interesting thing to think about, especially for me as someone who creates this show, something very sure. important to keep in mind. Um, please tell us where people can find you online, remind us about how to uh, find your show coming up on Hollow Earth, anything at all you want to plug. Oh, for sure. Um, my plug is, uh, once again, the Access Hour radio program that is on uh, Instagram. I have my profile that is under that name. Um, and the radio station is KHUH broadcasting out of Seattle. So if folks want to check out some weird and fun freeform uh, programming, that is the place to go. It is streamable through hollowearthradio.org. Um, and I would like to say I really appreciate being here in your time. I think you're doing a fantastic job on the topics we talked about, about uplifting voices. Thank you That's so much. one of the reasons why 
I connect so much with the podcast and it has made me cry (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because I can hear the effort being made to really have people just share their own voice. And I I think that's amazing. So I'm also plugging your podcast on your podcast. (laughs) Wow, that's that's amazing. That's really touching. Thank you so much. Um, Well, Genevieve, this has been so much fun. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show, sharing Mm -hmm. your story. I've learned a ton. And even just hearing from your words what it's like to live with bipolar disorder and ADHD Mm -hmm. and a bit about ulcerative colitis, you know, helps me to understand what other people might be experiencing. So I just really appreciate um, everything you did on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters-Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, and Justin Minnick. And our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.